This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you very much for those kind words of introduction, Dave. And um, uh, it's very kind of you to invite me back because I was here at almost exactly the same time 12 months ago. Um, the only previous occasions when I've been invited back is when I've accidentally taken the connector for the laptop to the, uh, uh, to the projector. So uh, I guess this time I didn't do that, so I must have been invited back for some other reason. Uh, there is, of course, a problem with being invited back uh, to give a talk at the same place on roughly the same topic, because you have already given your talk. Uh, so you're kind of puzzled about what do I say, because I said it all last time. You can hope that people may have forgotten. You can get away with just saying exactly the same thing 12 months later, and they say, oh, gosh, that's new. <laughs> but I'm not going to repeat myself uh, entirely. There will be a little bit of overlap. Um, but there is an opportunity to say something slightly different, because during the 12 months uh, from January 16 to January 17, uh, a great deal has changed in the world of politics, both in my country and in yours. And I'm going to talk about what's happened in my country, but I think there are some parallels between what's changed in the UK and what's changed in the USA. Uh, changes in the political environment that have um, a di direct relevance to uh, policies to tackle the challenge of, of climate change. And a phrase that's now frequently used is the phrase post-truth politics, recognizing that while it's always been the case that uh, politicians are tempted to stray from scientific evidence for public effect or for uh, convenience, uh, as one journalist put it recently, at least they used to stay roughly in the same zip code. Whereas now it seems as though anything goes. Uh, politicians in the United Kingdom, and I don't comment on what's happening in the US, but certainly the United Kingdom, politicians seem to be able to make assertions which bear no resemblance to uh, what we think of as facts, evidence, or truth. And indeed, another journalistic uh, creation is, is the concept of truth in us, things that sound as though they ought to be true, even if they have absolutely no resemblance to reality. Uh, and associated with this straying from what we as uh, scientists in the broadest sense, some of us may be social scientists, economists, some like me are natural scientists, what we think of as evidence, and we're striving to understand how the world operates, and we believe we accumulate evidence and we uh, develop a degree of expertise in both gathering data and interpreting it. But along with this uh, shift in the political landscape away from the notion that evidence ought to inform policy, uh, at the same time, there's an increasing disregard for experts. And this is uh, a quote from one of the uh, leading campaigners in the run-up to the referendum on June 23rd in the United Kingdom, in which the population of Britain voted by a small margin, 52 to 48, to leave the European Union. And I'm going to say more about that later. But one of the leading politicians, he was uh, what we call Secretary of State for Justice, so he was in charge of the legal, po political side of the legal system. Uh, he said in the run-up to the campaign when, uh, referendum, when all the experts were saying it's a bad thing for us to leave 
this uh, massive single market, the world's largest free trade area with 500 million people. It's a bad thing to leave it. And his response was, those are just experts. We've had enough of experts in this country. Uh, as one of those experts that spends a lot of time both in the upper house of parliament, in the house of lords, and through the climate change committee, which I'll talk about later, a statutory committee, spent a lot of time advising the government or holding them to account in parliament. Uh, I felt a bit upset by the fact that the country had had enough of experts. Just to say what the Economist said last September, uh, they said that uh, politicians are getting away with a new depth of pervasiveness of falsehood and pervasiveness of falsehood of truth as a tool for solving society's problems could be lastingly reduced. So that's a worry if that is the case for those of us who think we are experts advising politicians. Um, but what I was going to say was this is a, a Mori poll, one of the opinion pollsters in the United Kingdom, uh, asking people um, who do you actually trust? And you won't be able to read the detail there, but I can tell you the good news is that the people up at the top of the list, uh, top few are nurses, doctors, teachers, judges and scientists. So we're still up there. We're trusted by the population at large. Looking down to the bottom, at the bottom is politicians, generally, government ministers, journalists, and what we call estate agents. You call real estate agents. Um, <laughs> so I take a bit of heart that in spite of what some of our political leaders are saying, that we don't want any more of these experts, and we don't want uh, expert knowledge. We don't trust them any longer. Actually, the public out there does have some trust in us, and I soldier on in the hope that eventually um, the politicians who say that they don't need experts will come to recognize that even if they don't, then, uh, then the wider public still thinks that experts have a certain value and contribution to make to society. Now, turning to climate change in particular, one of the striking things in the run-up to the, the referendum on Brexit was that the leading politicians, the names don't mean anything to you, they mean a lot in the United Kingdom, but they're obscure figures uh, from, from the remote distance that we are here from the United Kingdom. The leading uh, politicians campaigning to leave uh, the European Union were also leading campaigners against the reality of climate change, climate change skeptics or climate change deniers. And it's quite extraordinary, this almost one-to-one uh, -one coincidence between campaigning to leave the uh, European Union and campaigning for the fact that climate change is uh, um, a hoax or the data don't support it and there's no need to do anything about it. Um, and many people have commented, well, the, the uniting factor uh, that uh, bonds these two positions together is, is ignoring the evidence. Um, uh, the evidence on the impacts of leaving the European Union and the evidence about the impacts and the reality of climate change. But the, um, those who are arguing, the politicians uh, who are arguing against the importance of acting on climate change have gradually shifted their position um, Five or six years ago, it was simply straight denial. And they were very pleased about the infamous pause that uh, the global average temperature did not appear to be rising at the same rate between 1998 and about 2011-12 as it had done in the previous few decades. So that gave them great boost to say, look, it's all stopped. The scientists got it wrong. They just made a mistake. And they've got all these models, but who knows, rubbish in, rubbish out. Um, so their arguments have moved now because actually the pause came to an end and they realized actually that the argument that it's not happening, 
was no longer sustainable. The evidence was just too, too strong, even though they don't like evidence. So they've shifted their ground. And I want to talk a bit about three arguments that are current and really live in the United Kingdom and are probably irrelevant here. Uh, number one, it may be happening, but it's too costly to do anything about it. Number two, it may be happening, but it's not going to be really serious, so we can just sit and wait. And number three, it may be happening, but on the other hand, it may not. There's a lot of uncertainty. You ask any climate modeler, and he or she will tell you, we can't be sure what the climate's going to be like in 2100. Well, if they don't even know, there's a lot of doubt about whether anything's going to happen at all. So that's the argument about uncertainty and doubt. And I want to um, talk a little bit about each of those arguments. So here's an example of the too costly. This is a publication of, uh, from a, a, an organization called the Global Warming Policy Foundation, which was set up by uh, a retired politician. And for those who are familiar with it, it's a bit like the Heartland Institute in the United States. It's dedicated to, uh, but it's only focused on climate change. So its whole purpose, its whole raison d'etre, is to refute the fact that climate change is happening or to refute the uh, suggestion that we should do anything about it. Uh, nobody knows how it's funded. They won't declare their sources of funding. Uh, they were a registered charity, but to be a registered charity in the United Kingdom, you have to say where you're getting your money from, so they're no longer a registered charity. Uh, but they produce publications, and their latest one, which came out just last month, was uh, this is all very well, but it's all too costly. The Climate Change Act will cost £300 billion, which is... Uh, current exchange rates may be around $360 billion uh, between 2014 and 2030 to implement the measures that are required under the Climate Change Act, which is our legislation that mandates that the government does something to mitigate and adapt to climate change. The question is, is well, the two questions, is $300 billion the right number? Uh, and if it is the right number, is it a big number or a small number? Any number can sound big if you just lay it out. You know, if I said, would you like $300 billion, you'd probably say, oh, that's a lot of money, John. Uh, on the other hand, uh, if I said that the United States over the last 30 years has spent $300 billion on its defense, you might say, well, that's a bit small, isn't it? So the question we have to ask, let's accept it is $300 billion, although I think the answer is it's probably not, not that big, but let's ask whether it's a big or a small number. And I want to put it in context in four different ways. Uh, one is um, uh, in, in relate, well, actually, mainly two ways. There are four points on the slide. One question, how does it relate to total GDP, the total wealth of the nation? And secondly, uh, how does it relate to um, household expenditure, to the individual family? Um, and here is the answer. If you look at it, 300 billion over 16 years, is about 1% of the United Kingdom's GDP. Another way of putting that is if you assume the, the uh, trend growth rate is about 2%, uh, a way of expressing this would be to say that in June 2030, the United Kingdom would be about as rich, if GDP measures wealth, and that's a questionable thing, as it would have been in January 2030 without action to uh, mitigate against climate change. So, you know, we're going to suffer for that whole six-month period being a bit poorer than we would have been uh, otherwise. Looking at it at the household level, if you reduce that, it's 700 pounds per household per annum, which might seem quite a lot of money, and it certainly is for some people. But the average that the UK household spends on insurance, according to OECD figures, is 4,000 pounds per annum. And if you think about mitigating against the, uh, against the 
possible severity of impacts of climate change, in other words, reducing greenhouse gas emissions as an insurance policy, it doesn't seem that expensive in, in relation to other things, your car and your house and your valuables that you're insuring. So 300 billion looks like a big number, but uh, it doesn't look so big when you look at it in, in broader context. The Climate Change Committee, which I'll talk about shortly, which I'm a member, which is a statutory committee that advises the government on how to tackle climate change, our estimate is actually about half the number that uh, this uh, paper gives us. But it doesn't matter whether it's 150 billion or 300 billion, <clears throat> it's actually a small number. Second <coughs> line of argument, and I have to take a bit of personal responsibility here because this guy, Matt Ridley, who is a very successful and well-known science writer. <clears throat> uh, he's written some wonderful books about evolution and genetics. Um, is also uh, a climate change, uh, uh, well, not denier, as it says here, he's a climate change lukewarmer. So it's happening, but it's not really serious. It's happening slowly and it's meandering along and we shouldn't worry about it. Um, uh, I should say a couple of things about Matt. Uh, firstly, I taught him when he was an undergraduate. And... Uh, <laughs> I examined his PhD thesis, so I carry a lot of responsibility for this guy. Um, I apologize about that. Um, secondly, he, he, is, um, he, he comes from a very uh, wealthy, noble family, uh, and among other things, their family fortune is based on coal mining. I draw no other connections whatsoever between that and his position. Uh, but uh, anyway, so it's an interesting question uh, whether the um, uh, climate change is slow and erratic, the trend of global temperature. And Matt wrote this at the peak of the time when the climate change deniers were triumphant about the pause. And here's an interesting piece of research on the pause. This is a guy called uh, Rick Lewandowski at Bristol University in England who um, presented a set of data to a group of agricultural economists, experts, and this is the data he, sh he showed them. And he said, uh, looking at this data set, do you think it's fair to claim that uh, world agricultural output, which is the uh, y-axis on this graph, stopped in 1998. And he asked a panel of 30-something uh, experts, of which three-quarters said, no, looking at those data set, that's a misleading claim. Uh, actually, the data are not to do with uh, agricultural output at all. They're global surface temperature anomalies. And the point of this study was that if you looked at the data set without any prejudice, you didn't you know, you weren't looking at it as this is about climate change. This was just a set of data showing some trends. Uh, you wouldn't have concluded that there was a pause between 1998 and 2010-11. Uh, so uh, I think even those who were keen on the pause uh, were kind of looking with the eye of hope at the, uh, at the data trends. The, the third argument that the climate change deniers have started using increasingly, and in fact it, it's a well-worn argument, uh, is that um, although we may think there is some evidence that the world is warming, uh, actually there's still a lot of uncertainty in the climate projections, and uncertainty equals doubt. And this is uh, uh, somebody from your country, I don't know who he is, but it's a quote I dug up of somebody called Frank Luntz, uh, arguing that we've got to really make scientific uncertainty the key issue in the climate debate. 
And many of you will be familiar with uh, this book, a really excellent book that came out about six or seven years ago by Naomi Oreskes uh, on, on the, the, what she calls the tobacco strategy of using uncertainty uh, to equate it with doubt, to equate it with lack of scientific evidence and exploiting really a lack of understanding about how science works because science doesn't produce absolute certainties. It produces uh, an accumulation of evidence that eventually becomes the consensus. Uh, but there's always room for disagreeing with the consensus view, and that's how we make progress in scientific research. But exploiting lack of knowledge about how science works to turn um, doubt and uncertainty into it ain't happening. Uh, so those are the, if you like, the, um, the more sophisticated uh, stances by politicians wishing to refute the evidence for climate change. But I want to talk for a few minutes now about the problem of how do we communicate um, uh, issues to do with climate when in the reality there is great uncertainty. Can we do more than saying, well, we don't quite know what's going to happen in the future? And I want to illustrate this uh, with an example that, to, that I owe to a colleague of mine in Oxford, a climate scientist called Tim Palmer. Um, and Tim, uh, his illustration, which I'm going to repeat here, is let's just forget about climate for a moment and think about weather. And think of yourself uh, having a job. You are a consultant weather forecaster for a private company, and one of your clients is this guy who owns uh, an ice cream truck. And he comes to you each day and he says, I've got to know how many ice creams to buy in order to stock up for tomorrow's sales. And I don't want to have too many, but I don't want to have too few. And how many should I buy? And you've got two bits of knowledge. One is this uh, response function in red, which uh, shows over a certain range of temperatures how many ice creams he is likely to sell. That's empirical data. It clearly can't go on and up, on up to the top. It must level off at some point. But over the normal range, you know there's a nonlinear function. Uh, above uh, 25 degrees, the sales of ice creams go rocketing on a really hot day. Uh, so that's fact one you have, and fact two is you've got your weather forecasting model for tomorrow. And your model says that the predicted temperature is 25 degrees, so you say to the ice cream truck owner, uh, stock up 70 ice creams. That's how many you need to have in order not to have surplus stock, but not to have too few, which is fine and dandy. But, of course, you then go back to your weather forecasting model and you say, well, there's a bit of uncertainty, actually, ice cream van owner, uh, because although I said the temperature is going to be 25 degrees, that's simply the, the central projection. It could be uh, 25. On the other hand, it might be as low as 20. We've got a cold front moving in, and we're not quite sure where it's going to have got to. If it's arrived below us, it'll uh, only be 20 degrees, uh, in which case uh, you only need to stock about 10 ice creams. On the other hand, uh, there is an uncertainty in the forecast, and there's a possibility the temperature may be 30, in which case you've got to stock uh, uh, 220 ice creams, or whatever the number is. And the uh, truck owner says, well, that's completely useless. I just, I mean, you know, what am I going to do? <laughs> You're telling me it's uncertain. You're an expert. Uh, so can we do better? Well, the answer is we can, because actually our weather forecast model won't just give us a flat distribution between 20 and 30 will give us a probability density function. And the probability density function has a mode at 25. And what we can do is integrate over the whole of that function to get the expected number of ice creams sold 
over the whole distribution. And if you do that, you come up with the answer 120 over the whole distribution, uh, whereas the mode is 70. Um, and so the advice you can actually give to the ice cream salesman is taking into account the distribution of the forecast, um, you can pretend the most effective policy for you is to pretend it's going to be 28 degrees tomorrow and stock up 120 ice creams, which is the equivalent of 28 degrees. It's actually not going to be 28 degrees, but that's what we can do given the probability distribution to give you the best estimate of what to do, prepare for, uh, for tomorrow. So that's all about weather. It's not about climate. But the same argument can be applied in climate, and this is the work of Chris Hope at the Judge Business School in Cambridge University, England. So here on the left you have... Um, is that right? I'm looking at a my slide here. The left you have a probability density function of... Um, uh, Sorry, someone's walked in front of it. Um, it's that bad, she's got to leave. Um, <laughs> never mind. Um, could the rest of you please stay? <laughs> I get really, really depressed if you've all gone. Um, I don't mind, I can still carry on talking, um, as many people will know. Um, so on the left, we have a probability density function of climate sensitivity, of climate projections, up to 2100, with uh, a mode at 2.5, but a possibility of it going up much higher. And on the right, we have some estimates, and don't ask me how these estimates were made, of impact as a function of uh, numbers of... Uh, 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 this, is, this scale is GDPs, so one GDP, two and three GDPs. Uh, for different countries or different regions of the world, uh, impacts of climate change as a function of temperature rise. So this is what the cost to the economy. So you've got, just like with the ice cream salesman, you've got a, a positively accelerating uh, impact function and you've got a distribution of temperature rises. And so the impact of, on global GDP of climate change at the mode would be 120 trillion, but if you integrate over the curve, uh, you get the effective which is the equivalent of 3.6 degrees temperature rise, which is 400 trillion. So if you were giving advice to politicians, and they said, well, what is the impact of climate change going to be in money terms by the end of the century? You could say, uh, assume it will be about 1.5 bigger, times bigger than the central projection. That will be one way of handling uh, translating uncertainty, which is not very helpful to politicians, into a number which is helpful. Now, that number itself, of course, may change over time, but at least you've got something that you can message directly. Um, I want to go from theory to practice, and I just mentioned this is a little insert, if you like, into the talk, uh, because I know this is um, a wine-growing area of California, and a couple of years ago I was in Australia giving a talk in, in Melbourne, uh, and in the same meeting, to me, the most impressive talk about uh, the impacts of climate change was given by a woman from Treasury Wine Estates, which is one of the big Australian brands. Uh, most of the Australian wines that you buy in California are probably made by Treasury Wine Estates. And what, uh, what she showed was, was this graph, which is actually really, really interesting, and I'd be curious to know if anything like this has been observed in California. What this shows is the, the ripening dates for two different grape varieties, Chardonnay and Cabernet Sauvignon. And what it's showing is that uh, as a result, they believe, of climate change, uh, the, the ripening dates are converging. So in the early 1990s, there was 20 days separation, and uh, by 2010, it was only around 10 days separation. 
And what's the importance of that for the business? The importance for that for the business, some of you are probably wine growers and I'm not, so I may be speaking uh, uh, inappropriately here, but what, they, what she said was, once the grapes are ripe and they've reached a certain uh, uh, ripeness measured on this scale here, and I don't know what the scale uh, means, but that's what the scale is, and um, uh, once they've reached certain ripeness, you have to pick them and start uh, fermenting them. And the problem is that as the grape varieties are ripening closer to closer together in time, you no longer can ferment one variety in your fermentation facility, take them out and put them into casks and then ferment the next variety. So uh, what Treasury Wine has had to do is to double up on its uh, fermentation capacity. So here is a, a business responding to the reality of climate change and I always feel that the politicians who in the UK who deny that anything's going on, and the same in Australia, actually, they have a very climate-sceptic political leadership, why aren't they going to talk to these guys whose livelihood depends on it, who are spending massive amounts of money uh, on the projection that this is going to get worse in the future? But that is an aside. And I want to turn to um, the theme that I started with, namely the vote on the 23rd of June, for us to, the United Kingdom, to leave the union of 28 countries, a total population of 500 million, uh, and go it our own way. Um, I, and I'm not going to, I could spend two hours going uh, on about how dreadful this is, but I'm not going to do, to, to do that. I'm simply going to talk about the impact of it on policies related to climate change. And, uh, and how we're going to deal with that, or what we've got to deal with. So just to, to remind you, or maybe you don't know this, the vote was uh, quite close. It was just under 51.9% to 51.9 to 48.1, on about a two-thirds turnout, which is quite high uh, in the UK for a national vote. And the pattern of voting which is summarized here, is that the main trends were people who voted to leave were more likely to be manual workers, to earn less money, uh, to have no qualifications, and to be older, age 65 plus. So it was old, less well-educated, and poor people that voted to leave, uh, and uh, the better educated and wealthier people uh, on the whole voted to stay. Um, and there are lots I could go into the sociology that lies behind that, but I'm not going to. Instead, I'm going to talk about the impacts on climate, uh, uh, climate policy. Well, certain things won't change in the United Kingdom. The science of climate change is not affected by uh, Brexit, nor is the national legislation. So in 2008, uh, the UK government passed into law an act called the Climate Change Act, which requires the government to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions to at least 80% below 1990 levels by 2050. And they set up an independent um, committee, of which I'm a member, that uh, both advises and scrutinizes the government's progress on that commitment. And I'll tell, let's tell you a little bit more about that in a second. The other thing that hasn't changed is the Paris uh, uh, Agreement that was... Uh, signed last December has now been ratified by a large number of countries, including the United Kingdom, uh, and that remains. So the Climate Change Act, as I say, uh, committed us to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by at least 80% by 2050, um, and it works by the Climate Change Committee 
recommending to the government a five yearly carbon budget. So it says you've got to, got, got to have reached this point by uh, this five year period. And each of those budgets then is debated in Parliament. And so far, the first five of them, which take us up to 2030, have been passed into law by Parliament. And there's also, uh, the Act requires a national adaptation program, which is scrutinized also by the, the Climate Change Committee. And I chair the adaptation subcommittee of the Climate Change Committee. So this is where we've got to so far, and I showed this slide last year, but it's got a little bit more data on it now. Uh, there's 1990, and this is the path to 2050. And in, in recommending to the government what the path should look like, we can't just pluck numbers out of the air. We have to do a cost-benefit analysis of what is the most cost-effective cost way of reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. And the solid line here shows where we've got to up to 2015, and the gray shadow are the uh, carbon budgets that have been passed into law. So it is now legally binding that the government has to get to here by 2030, which is 57% below the starting point. So that is the law, and then the end point here is uh, where the government's got to get to. And you'll see a little, uh, if, you've, if you've got very sharp eyesight, you can see a little a dotted box above this green bar because the law does not at the moment include uh, international aviation and shipping but we think the climate change committee thinks that it should and so we've allowed for that and this is if you take out in international aviation and shipping then this is what's left at the bottom so this is the cost effective path to 2050 that's where we've got to so far so everything's looking pretty good if you look in a bit more detail and ask where have those reductions come from, so here's the same axis from 1990 to 2015, here's where the Climate Change Act was passed into law, and you can see that one of these, these are the amount of carbon equivalents produced by different sectors of the economy. Uh, the big sectors are industry and power. Industry was already going down steadily, and that's because in the United Kingdom, as in, I believe, in the United States, in some degree, Heavy industry has largely been uh, offshored, so we don't make a lot of steel anymore. Uh, we don't have a coal industry anymore, and um, those things are now uh, done elsewhere in the world. And the carbon budget simply refers to our own national emissions, not to our total consumption-based emissions, which you might say is a cheat, but at least it's better than nothing. So industry was going down steadily already, being replaced, heavy industry being replaced by service industries, uh, which require less, uh, produce less carbon, and that trend has carried on. Power sector uh, was going down a bit, but then has gone down very sharply post-2008, and the reason for that is partly a switch from coal to gas, uh, and partly uh, a huge investment in, in renewables. And the, most, the biggest portion of renewable investment in the United Kingdom is offshore wind. 40% of the world's offshore wind generation capacity is off the coast of the United Kingdom. So we're doing by far and away the largest amount of any country in the world on that. Um, the other sectors, transport's hardly changed at all. Buildings has hardly changed at all. Uh, waste has gone down. So now moving forward, now I'm going to come to the what about Brexit? Um, so here we are at 2015, 16, and this is the trajectory the government has to go along, um, and it's made commitments ahead. Uh, and the commitments it's had are things that are either firmly committed or things that are 
pretty firmly committed, and then this wedge here, the red wedge, the alarm wedge, is where there's what we call a policy gap. So in order to uh, fill the wedge between baseline, do nothing, and where you've got to be by 2030, this is just over the next uh, uh, 15 years or so, um, some stuff is already in the pipeline, has got to be implemented, but beyond that, a whole raft of new policies have got to be created, and the government recognises that, and is supposed to announce those in the next couple of months. And those may be policies to uh, roll out electric vehicles much more rapidly, to insulate buildings much more rapidly and more effectively than they are, to achieve further decarbonisation of the electricity sector. But now, if you look at it in relation to Brexit, uh, here's the same graph, but quite a few of those policies in all three wedges, the green, the yellow, and the red, are dependent on things that are legislated not at UK national level, but at European level. So they're now, without being members of the European Union, and without having this system of regulation at the European level, those policies become at risk. And if you break that down <coughs> and look at the percentage, so this is um, what is an illustrative reduction by different sectors between now and 20, or between 2015 and 2030, over 15 years. Uh, these are the amounts of uh, reduction, that's uh, percentage reduction that uh, have to be produced. And this is what proportion of those different sectors depend on EU policies. So, for example, waste is entirely an EU competence. So the rules that are made at European level, not at national level, um, things like uh, uh, industry, quite a lot of the emission standards in industry are European uh, rules rather than national rules. And if you look in more detail what lies behind that, here are some examples of European rules. Uh, household products, refrigerators, kettles, electric kettles, and so on. All of the efficiency standards on those are set at, at European level. Vehicle fuel efficiency is set at European level. Um, emissions of F gases, fluorine gases, is set at European level. Uh, we operate a, a cap-and-trade carbon uh, trading scheme with the other European countries, which is an important part of our emissions reductions plan, so we can buy carbon credits and offset those against our emissions. Um, waste reduction, I've already mentioned too. Europe has a mandatory requirement on increasing the use of biofuels. Importantly, there's a Europe-wide electricity market so that you can buy uh, within suitable interconnectors, you can buy electricity on a spot market from any European by day basis. There's an auction every day, and that means countries that are, have got surplus energy can sell it to another country and thereby save that country producing its own electricity. So it's an efficient distribution of available resource. And then there's a very big R&D European budget. So what that tells us is that um, the decision to leave the European Union is going to have major, major, major effects on, on climate policy because the UK is going to have to find ways of replacing in national legislation all of the uh, controls on efficiency of vehicles, et cetera, et cetera, as well as the scrutiny system that monitors that, as well as determining what we do when we're out of the emissions trading scheme and out of the electricity market unless the government decides to pay to stay in those schemes, which would be possible. And we don't yet know what the answer is. So the summary of that is that um, Brexit, as a political choice, 
will have major impacts on, on climate policy in the United Kingdom and possibly on other European countries as well. Um, I should say that quite separately from what I'm talking about now, there's a raft of other environmental policies that are uh, um, both implemented and, and controlled at European level. And one of the strongest controls on any European member state for abiding by environmental policies is the fact that the European Commission, through the European Court of Justice, can impose a fine on national governments. And the UK national government at the moment has 30 of these uh, fine procedures un undergoing uh, through the courts process in Europe at this very moment. And these are things ranging from air quality to water pollution to uh, waste disposal. And it's that threat of being fined by a supranational entity that has huge power, is a real, real motivator for the government to do stuff. Uh, and once that threat has been removed, um, it's not clear who will, um, who will actually uh, take on that police role. A couple of weeks ago, in my role in the House of Lords, I sit on a scrutiny committee and we had the environment minister in before us and we asked her that very question. We said, look, what's going to happen when the uh, uh, European Commission, the European Court of Justice isn't breathing down your neck anymore? And she said, oh, no, no, don't worry about it. We are completely committed to in high environmental standards. And we said, yeah, but we've just noticed that you uh, failed a, a judicial review against uh, an NGO about air quality in London last week. And you know, if you're really committed to high environmental standards, why is this NGO having to take you to court? And she said, oh, well, you know, that just shows it will work without uh, the European Union because the NGOs can take us to court. Um, <laughs> that's an interesting approach. So uh, I guess the answer for people in Britain who care about the environment is give a lot of money to the NGOs so that they can uh, take the government to court. I now want to just in the last few minutes, because uh, I'm going to come to an end soon, talk uh, briefly about the, the Paris Agreement. Um, so last time I was here, the uh, agreement had been signed, the Paris Convention had been signed by 197 countries, but they still had to ratify it to actually say, yes, we're going to make the commitments. And as of when I last looked this up, which was a week or two back, 120 of the 90, 197 parties, 80% uh, of global emissions have now uh, ratified the treaty. And to remind you, the treaty is to hold global temperature rise to well below 2 degrees above pre-industrial levels and to pursue efforts limited to 1.5. Very high ambitions uh, and to um, balance the sources and sinks of greenhouse gases by the second half of the century. Um, the, that's the ambition. The reality, and this is a slide again I showed last year, is not quite the same as the ambition. So these are historic, this is emissions up here, global greenhouse gas emissions in CO2 equivalents against time along here. Historically, emissions have gone up like this. Um, under a do-nothing scenario, uh, they would go up on this blue wedge. Under the commitments made in Paris and now ratified, they'd follow this wedge. In order to get to two degrees, they'd have to go to this very pale green wedge to get to 1.5 degrees, they'd have to go in this slightly darker green wedge. So there's a huge gap still to be filled between what countries have committed to and what needs to be done to achieve the ambition. So it's great. It's good that there is a, a commitment, but the commitment is nowhere near enough to meet the ambition that was set out in Paris. 
Of course, the treaty also contains the idea of ratcheting up the commitments over time. So uh, that's the hope. And there is still time, because if you do, and these are not calculations I did, but this is from some work done by uh, climate scientists in the United Kingdom, that if you look at the level of ambition to get below two degrees, when would you have to get to net zero carbon dioxide emissions uh, by the early, early second half? Return to 1.5, you'd have to cap CO2 emissions at zero by the 2040s. For other greenhouse gases that have shorter residences times in the atmosphere, you've got slightly longer. So there is still time to achieve those ambitions, but uh, there won't be time for that much longer. And increasingly, and this is more or less my, my final point, uh, people are beginning to talk about uh, negative emissions technologies, uh, meaning how can we, if we're still pumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, how can we suck it out? And there are a whole range of possibilities from uh, carbon capture and storage to using weathering of materials that will capture the carbon maybe as calcium carbonate, tree planting, um, using bioenergy but with carbon capture and storage, uh, storing it in soils, adding charcoal to soils, which is a way of, uh, if you turn the carbon into charcoal and then it's inert and stays in the soil for a very long period of time, and some people have talked about adding uh, iron to the oceans to increase the growth of plankton to fix carbon that way. Apart from uh, tree planting, uh, none of these technologies are really ready for use yet. But we shouldn't rule out the fact that as we move forward over the decades ahead, we're going to have to deploy some techniques of these, maybe out of this list, maybe out of others that we haven't yet thought of, that can actually suck carbon out of the atmosphere to counter the stuff we're still pumping out of our uh, chimneys and exhaust, uh, vehicle exhausts. Finally, this my very last slide is to come back to a sort of question about the role of government, because um, with, given that we have turbulence in the political world in the United Kingdom and uncertainty about what the government's commitment will be. There's a law there, but the government could try to repeal the Climate Change Act. I don't think they would succeed, but certainly some politicians are saying, we want now to do away with it. This is the opportunity to repeal it. It's not clear what they'll do about all the leg legislation that uh, resides in Brussels, in Europe, whether that will be um, uh, transferred into UK legislation. The official government position at the moment is, uh, we will introduce uh, a bill which translates all European legislation into UK national legislation, and then the punchline, insofar as reasonably practicable. Uh, so that is the get out of jail card for them. And we've tried to find out what that means in the scrutiny committee that I sit on. But uh, in fact, we just had a note from the Environment Department yesterday, came into my inbox, but it was so waffly and vague, uh, you couldn't tell what it meant at all. So that just leaves me my last slide. Whose responsibility is it to deal with uh, climate change? And again, uh, insofar as one can trust these kind of opinion surveys, this is an Ipsos Mori poll carried out a couple of years ago. And which of the following groups should be responsible for taking action to deal with the consequences of climate change in the UK? And um, most people, number one is, is the national government. So people do think this is a role for government. Interestingly, individuals and households should have some responsibility. Um, local government should, uh, industry, business, uh, and down at the bottom, insurance companies. But the overwhelming, the blue is most responsibility 
read is some responsibility. The overwhelming view is that it is the role of national government to do something about it. And one hopes that um, when it comes to the ballot box that people express this in their votes rather than just expressing it to opinion pollsters. Thank you very much. Um, one of the things that struck me about your presentation was how at the end you said most people thought that the responsibility to act was with the government, yes. or at least some responsibility. But an earlier slide you showed that people's trust in governments and ministers and politicians was at the very bottom. So how do you propose reconciling those views to come up with some kind of coherent sort of way forward? I, I don't think I do. I don't necessarily think that opinion polls produce coherent uh, answers. Is, and, I mean, I always treat... I, I like to show slides because it's got some data on it, but I always treat those things with a very large... A uh, pinch of salt because um, it all depends on the mood people are in and how the question's put. But yeah, I, I mean, I guess it's not totally impossible. You could say it's the government's job to do something, but we don't trust them that they'll do it. But uh, that is uh, the recon reconciliation. But I don't claim that you know these opinion polls produce rationally coherent uh, syntheses. Yes. But it's a good point. Uh, I have a quick question. Wasn't Brexit predominantly about immigration, and a lot of it's from Eastern Europe? Presumably, if this goes through, a lot of people will be restricted from coming to England, and probably a lot will have to leave who are not citizens. Is that fact? I know that's. I don't know the numbers, but is that factored into uh, emissions? Because you have yeah. less people using less facilities, yeah. mm -hmm. so you don't need as much electricity. That's one yeah. question. Second one, quickly, is why is Chinese money building the nuclear power plant? Is that, what is the gain for China in that deal? Um, okay. Um, first one about population. Um, you're absolutely right that any projections of um, our emissions have to be based on a population scenario. And what we do is to take the... We have an organisation called the Office of National Statistics, which is the government office that produces national statistics. And their central projection for 2050 is um, a population of something, I think, in the mid-70 millions, which is about 8 million above what it is now. Um, would that change dramatically as a result of uh, Brexit? Uh, probably not, because it is almost certain that uh, the government will uh, give those people who've come from Eastern Europe uh, to, to work and live in the United Kingdom, they will give them the right to stay. It's partly a quid pro quo, because there are also, uh, I think, a couple of million UK citizens who are working in other European countries who want to stay and work there. So I think that will they'll, there's bound to be a deal on that. I can't imagine them sending home over 3 million people to Poland, Bulgaria, Romania, um, Czech Republic, and so on. They'll stay. Uh, that will, will reduce immigration in the future, although part of the problem that our Prime Minister faces is that every industry sector or business sector from scientific research to pharmaceuticals to agricultural workers... 
um, to um, heavy industry, to financial services, wants free movement of people because they absolutely depend on recruiting the best skills from around the world. And particularly, it's easy to recruit them from around Europe because you don't have to get a work visa. So it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out. You are quite right that the essential thing in the referendum was immigration. Uh, the feeling in some communities that just too many people had come to live there from outside the UK and it was changing the nature of the community, which is maybe true. It's, I, I couldn't really comment. But yeah, so population projection is important. I don't think it'll be dram dramatically changed. Um, on why is China investing in our nuclear industry? Um, I'm not an expert in international <laughs> relations, so I hesitate to comment whether it's seen as a good economic investment, a way of gaining some influence over, over the United Kingdom by controlling some of its infrastructure. I, I don't know, but they have the expertise and they have the money and they want to do it, but I haven't really delved into why they, what their motives are. I couldn't comment. Next question is here. I'll take you next. Yeah. One after that Under Article 50 of the uh, EU, Brexit is still not official. It's up before yeah. the House. Yeah. Uh, and does the House of Lords get to vote on this too? Yeah. yeah. Um, that's a very good question. As some of you who may have read that in the... Um, in the newspaper or on, on, the, on the news media, on Tuesday this week, uh, the um, uh, UK government lost a case in the Supreme Court. Um, they had previously lost the case in the High Court in December, but there's, um, the High Court is the second highest tier in our judiciary. Supreme Court ruled on Tuesday by eight to three, there are 11 judges on the Supreme Court at the moment, that the UK government, the executive, could not uh, invoke, uh, it's called invoking Article 50, Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty uh, of the European Union, which is the act or the article of the treaty that you have to invoke in order to leave. The Supreme Court ruled they could not invoke that treaty without the prior approval of Parliament. So it was holding the executive to account. Uh, the judiciary said the executive was behaving illegally and it had to be approved by Parliament. So your question is, what's going to happen now? Uh, the government will have to produce uh, an act, uh, the Invoking Article 50 Act, which they will produce in the next week. It will be uh, debated in the House of Commons first, and the House of Commons may try to pr uh, promote amendments, although the government has a majority in the House of Commons, so they will force it through. They don't have a majority in the House of Lords, and it's thought that the House of Lords may try to cause quite a lot of trouble. I don't think in the end the government will be uh, prevented from invoking Article 50 because under the Parliament Act, which dates back to the early part of the last century, the uh, lower house, the House of Commons, which is entirely elected, has supremacy over the upper house, the House of Lords, where I sit, which is entirely unelected. Um, so it will delay but not, not uh, change radically. What it might be, there might be some amendments so that the government has to set out a strategy before it invokes Article 50, which they haven't done so far. Hello, and thanks so much for that talk. Um, so 
Post-truth politics is, I think, uh, perhaps as much about fear-mongering as it is sort of the denial of scientific facts. So um, do you think that popular opinion may be shifted if experts or climate policy advocates like yourself um, engage in more aggressive fear-mongering and perhaps the media have a role to play there? Um, I think, just to pick on the last part, the media have a hugely important role to play but the media are not always our friends. I mean, the media can bite you as well as uh, nurture you. And um, particularly in the UK, the print media, the, uh, the daily papers, in general are pretty uh, hard right-wing and not particularly friendly to the idea of tackling climate change, for instance. Um, so the, as to whether scientists should fear-monger, I actually think not. I think... Um, I mean, there's a tendency always to try and overstate or emphasize one's case just for effect. But I think that's counterproductive. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the history is littered with examples of where people made gloom predictions, whether it was about a nuclear winter, whether it was about uh, running out of resources. Um, uh, Paul Ehrlich up the road at Stanford made some uh, dramatic predictions about running out of resources, didn't he, which turned out not to be true. And he lost a bet with uh, Herbert Simon, I think, on that very matter, the Nobel Prize winning economist from Harvard. So I don't think, I think we should be cautious and steadfast rather than um, uh, scaremongering. That's my view. But it should be firm and, uh, and try to really argue the case in public as well as amongst ourselves. Yeah. So, uh, in relation to post-truth politics, I think we're all familiar with the merchants of doubt pathway to that. But I wonder to what extent you think that that uh, we in academia might have also contributed to it in making our institutions increasingly unfriendly to rural people, poor people, and conservative people. There are a lot of uh, humanities departments now where Marxists outnumber Republicans by uh, two to one. (laughs) Uh, And there's a fair amount of pseudoscience um, in some sections of the academy. One of the the funnier uh, papers I've come across recently was one that claimed that height differences between men and women are a cause uh, are caused by uh, sexist food discrimination. <laughs> uh, and so I'm, I'm wondering, in, in, in that kind of a climate, do you, how much do you think that that contributes to eroding our credibility when it comes to things that we really do know about, like climate change? Hmm, gosh. <laughs> I can see in front of me a big area labeled minefield. <laughs> I, 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 well... Let me try and be evasive. Um, uh, <laughs> Next question. <laughs> no, I'm going to go a little bit closer. I, I mean, I, th- I think setting aside the question of uh, you know Marxism and uh, uh, are, are women short because they've been uh, subject to sexist diets, um, I think that there is a broader question about how the academy uh, reaches out to people who are unfamiliar and uh, don't recognize what we do. I mean, we live in a bubble. Uh, One of the things that was said in the whole um, Brexit, uh, post-Brexit debate, people like me are called Ramonas because we wanted to remain in Europe and we're moaning about it all the time. And one of the things that was said about Ramonas 
is that we move around the world in a bubble. So, you know, I happily get on a plane in London. I arrive in at Santa Barbara uh, 15 hours later, by the time I've been to LAX and got the, the bus and so on. And I meet folks who are all lovely, just like me. And, uh, you know, they're the same sort of folks I'd see back at home in Oxford. So I transport my bubble of liberal uh, intellectual values around the world, and I meet other people with the same values, and we're all very warm and cuddly together. And I think there is a question as to how uh, we break out of that bubble and connect with other bubbles. I don't have a good answer to it. Um, one of the things that I do from time to time is go and talk to um, local community groups uh, where you meet people's whose level of hostility towards the kind of values that probably you and I share uh, is just unbelievable. And you feel, uh, gosh, maybe I shouldn't have done this. But it is quite salutary. Um, I went to one just a few months back to a, a region in the southwest of England which had been very severely flooded and uh, in about 18 months ago. And a lot of people's homes had been destroyed. And the question was, is this flooding to do with climate change? And if it is to do with climate change, whose problem is it? And I tried to give a sort of nuanced, balanced, well-judged uh, uh, presentation about this and answer questions. And uh, I certainly reached out to parts I'd never reached before and probably wished I hadn't reached. But, uh, and I'm not claiming I'm particularly good at it, but I think we do need to get out there into different parts of the community and connect with them. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.